stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com. Good afternoon, it's 7 past 1 on a Tuesday afternoon. You're listening to the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. Today in the hour, we're going to be uh, crossing over to our correspondents, Ranjeni, who is in KwaZulu-Natal at the moment, and Rebecca Davis, who is covering the F.W. de Klerk uh, conference on 25 years of the unbanning of political parties in South Africa. But at the top of the hour, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about some youth issues. And I'm joined in studio by a special guest, uh, NK Make Your Marks Chief Operating Officer, Kingsley Kapuri. Welcome. Thanks, Greg. Big fan of the show. Happy to be here. So we're talking about youth issues. Tell us, what does NK Make Your Mark do? Um, so NK is a, is a youth development organization. And, and what we do is is we work with young people from across the country and get them to be agents of positive, positive social change, wherever they are. Sounds good. Yeah, it sounds pretty simple. But how do you do it? <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot more fun than I'm making it sound. So what we do is uh, we get we get young people from across the country. Our target group is, is between 15 and 30, but largely high school age. Mm-hmm. And and the question we ask is, is what's bugging you about your community? What's frustrating you? What's exciting you about you want to be a part of? And we really challenge them to be part of the solution for these issues. So if it's education, if it's... Um, if it's issues around garbage collection, if it's sanitation, it is, sanitation teenage pregnancy, drugs, it is, absolutely all the issues you're naming. And we think young people are best placed to take action on these issues. So mm-hmm. we challenge them to mm-hmm. do so. We, we all know about sort of the youth problem in South Africa, you know, unemployment, poor education levels, and we all know some, something needs to change. But how do you actually help them improve their own communities? How do you actually do it? Um, okay. So, um, just to run you through how the cycle works. Um, so first thing is, is we identify young people that already have an eye for, um, an eye for sort of social action. So, so the nerds. Are, yeah, people who are, not, not necessarily the nerds, funny enough. It's, but it's, it's, it's actually people who are often involved in community. So people are, who are playing for their soccer teams, but frustrated that they don't have a pitch. Or mm-hmm. people that like computers, but don't have any computers. So it's not necessarily the nerds. Um, and we bring these young people together from across the country. Um, so across the socioeconomic divide, across, you know, geographic boundaries, and we bring them together. So we've got this melting pot of, of excitement and, and sort of. Okay. Energy. You bring them together, but what yeah. do you do? Do they go to school together? What? How does it work then? <laughs> so what happens if we've got a week long of what we call a forum? Mm-hmm. And what happens at this forum is we start to brainstorm issues. What, what's frustrating your community? Um, what do you want to do something about? And then we move from this frustration and we move into project plans. It's like, okay. So we, we've, we've established that there are things we want to change. Um, what are we going to do about it? And we start this, I, we start this process of brainstorming what these people are going to do when they get back to their communities. Mm-hmm. Now, now, we've heard a, there are a lot of these programs around the country in yeah. various formats, you know, whether it might focus on something specific like yeah. photography or, wh- or whether it might just be like a young leadership, um, conference or something like that. What is different about NK? Cause I've heard a lot of positive things about it. Um, so I'd say if, if there were, if we were to identify what makes us different, I think the first is we're non-prescriptive. So we don't think that HIV AIDS is the biggest issue or unemployment is the biggest issue. Not to say that these are not important, but we think the people on the ground should decide what's most prevalent. So the biggest issue in Bochum in Limpopo is different from the biggest issues in Mayfair and Gauteng. Mm-hmm. So we let the young people decide for themselves what's the biggest issue in your community. So mm-hmm. one thing is definitely not, that we're non-prescriptive. The second thing is support. So it's not just go change the world, have a great time, take some pictures. But when they go back into the communities, we support them. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we, we make sure that for at least the next nine months after they leave the forum, that we're on the phone with them, on WhatsApp, on Facebook, doing site visits to make mm-hmm. sure that they, they feel they have the emotional and technical support to actually do something because it, it takes a lot of guts to go out there mm-hmm. at 15 years old and, and change a community. So we make sure that we're with them the whole way. 
Um, this week we've seen uh, what happened in the in the Kuro school where certain school children are being segregated um, according to race. And we know that across the country, there, even amongst children, there are a lot of divides um, by either race, class, ethnicity, anything like that. Um, and you mentioned that NK gets um, gets these school children from across the whole country and from different classes, right? Absolutely. What what sort of benefit does that give these these guys, and and how how does that work? Does is is it hard for them to get along, and how how does it work with all these different kids from different backgrounds um, coming together and trying to trying to spend a week together? Okay, absolutely. So just as you mentioned, so part of our mission is to connect across the socioeconomic divide, um, and. And the, I think the benefit of that is to, is for people to realize they're not so different. I mean, it sounds, you know, so we are the world, let's hold hands. But the, <laughs> but, but the truth is they realize, listen, we're all 15, we're all kind of into the same things, you know. The boys all like girls, the girls are all doing their things. So we're not so different. Not all the boys like girls. Okay, it's that's just, true. <laughs> Uh, let's just let's just jump that. Um, but the, <laughs> the 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 focus is, and what I think brings them together in our unique context is that they all they all want they all want to improve whatever situations they're coming from. Mm-hmm. And we 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 what's also encouraging to see is a lot of the a lot of the students from from Model C schools, ex Model C schools, and even so called privileged backgrounds also still are looking into their into their communities, their schools and saying what can we do to make this better. So it's not it's not purely about people from, from underprivileged backgrounds making things better. It's it's about all South Africans coming together to improve their community. So that's really something that we see. Mm-hmm. So you get all these you get all these young people from across the country, bring yeah. them together, help them focus on these positive issues. Yeah. But how do you know that they're actually doing something and what and what do they do? Do you have any examples of what they actually do um, to help their communities? Um yes yeah, so absolutely we 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 focus a lot of, of of, of our energy on on our on our monitoring and evaluation, which is how do we know these guys are actually starting projects? How do we know the impact of these projects? Um, so we've got a we've got a team that spends that spends time tracking them and and getting monthly updates from the young people. Um, so an example of 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 some of sort of our star projects that have come through. Um, so one is the is the Pride's movement started by two young people, Avumile and Kosana, in in the Eastern Cape. And they came to the NK Forum and they, and they really loved the energy and excitement they felt there. And they wanted to pass it on. So they partnered with a local high school in their community and they're, and they're running, they're running personal development classes for their primary school, for their local primary school. So working to, you know, over 50 primary school students and already at that young age, instilling, instilling values they think are important, um, like respect and integrity and so on. Things that were not being discussed at a primary school level before. Um, so we really, Put up, put a big emphasis on making sure that there's there's a follow-on from what we do. Mm-hmm. And obviously, there must be an identified gap in in what needs to change in youth issues in South Africa. What when when this organisation was formed, what sort of gaps did you want to address particularly? Um, so I think one thing was the was the was the issue of apathy. Um, this idea that 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 young people, um, this idea that young people have to wait for somebody else, for, for an older person or person in a position of power or somebody with money or, or somebody else to come and do it for them. So that's a big that's a big focus of what we do. As much as we're not focusing on, on a particular socioeconomic issue, we are focusing on this idea that young people can take their future into their own hands and and, and focus on that. And we've just had a question come in on the issue of finances. We've seen a lot of NGOs in the last few years really struggle, and some even closed down, particularly when things like USAID or PEPFAR withdrew money and certain foreign donors um, redirected money out of South Africa towards other African countries. How does NK Make Your Mark get its funding? Um, you're right. Um, 2012, 2013 was a really tough year, and we had some some good nonprofits doing some great work. As they're retrenching, most of their staff were closing down completely. So that's been a big, that's been a big issue in the sector and something we're, we're, we're looking at. In terms of NK's 
specifically So our, our funding is mostly local um, So that's a lot of CSI From a lot of the, the local banks and, 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 and businesses in the in the private sector We do have some aid funding That's coming from outside the country But that's uh, that's sort of a smaller portion of our funding But it, it's a constant challenge As you've mentioned mm. Okay, still on the issue of, of youth We're going to cross over to Cape Town right now And speak to a young man, Rafael Mineta Who is part of the live VIP campaign And that is Voting is Power um, and they, they, uh, are sort of young people for young people creating content, um, on, on particularly issues of politics. And Rafiwa has been with, with those guys for a little while and he's, he's their parliamentary correspondent. Are you with us, Rafiwa? Yeah, I am. What's up, Chris? I am. Uh, good. How are you doing? <laughs> uh, not too bad, man. Yourself? I'm good. Thanks. So, so Rafiwa, can you, can you tell us a bit about what you do for what the Voting is Power campaign does and, and what you do down there at Parliament? Okay, sweet. Um, so, I work for a company called Liberty Africa, um, we're a youth content agency, um, uh, and one of the, one of the platforms we have is a platform called Live Medicine. It's a youth-run website. And one of the streams of content we do is the VIP, uh, that's called Voting is Power. So it's just about getting young people engaged in politics, getting them involved in the, you know, democratic process. So one of the projects we're working on right now is Life from Parliament, and uh, that's a sort of campaign where we sort of place a couple of people in Parliament. I'm one of them, like parliamentary reporters, and we report Life from Parliament uh, about policy making. We go to portfolio committees, and that's just to sort of decipher the language and just give an idea to young people what's going on in Parliament. And, and how old are you, Rolf? You're like 22, 23? Uh, I'm 24. 24. Is it weird being being this sort of young guy, you know, working for a youth magazine, all of a sudden being thrown into Parliament and having to cover issues, you know, where where often there's a lot of other journalists covering them and who are much older, and and it's often hard to get young people interested in this stuff. How 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 is it being down there as a young person in Parliament? Um, it's pretty it's pretty intimidating to tell you the truth. So I mean, like a couple of times you you get into a portfolio committee committee meeting and the language like it's just so laced with jargon. You have no idea what they're talking about. And, I mean, it can get a bit intimidating. Also, there's also the, you know, the possibility that what we're writing about, you know, is, you know, very foreign to, to, to our readers. So they might not be interested in, in what we're saying at all. But, you know, we do feel like it is something that's important. You know, it's a pretty important topic, the idea of having, you know, being sort of the intermediary between parliament and young people. So in that sense, I'd say it's pretty exciting but yeah, I think it's it's important. So yeah, it's it's pretty fulfilling. Um, yeah, I mean, so this is Kingsley here. I'm just I'm just curious. How how do you uh, sort of go through that divide? How do you make the parliament issues relevant for young people? Like, what what kind of thinking process? Or how do you package it? Okay, cool. So usually the stories we write about, like, um, so we'll attend the try to make the stories really personal. Mm. Like, let's say we're writing about a piece of legislation. We don't want to make it, it's one thing to say uh, the government just signed a piece of legislation and it's going to do A, B, C and such and such and such. It's another thing to show people how it's going to personally affect them. So I remember, like, for example, there was a story we wrote on substance abuse. Uh, there was a portfolio committee, I think it was the Department of Social Development, and one of our writers, Sabe uh, Kabela, he, he um, found a piece of information, he, he went to the portfolio committee, and after that, instead of just saying, okay, government's going to do such and such and such and such, he said, he related it to a person. He said, this is what the legislation is going to do. Uh, here's a real person. How This is how it's going to affect them. And 
So th- that's basically what we do. We try not to take the stories to, you know, um, high concept and out there. We th- then at, at each point, we always try to make sure that, you know, we we give a personal side of the story. We try to show the people we're writing to how, how it's going to affect them in some sense. And also, there was another story we did, for example, about NASPAS and how the higher education, um, the, the Department of Higher Education is going to tackle that. So we talked to real people, found out what they think, told them how that's going to impact them. And I think when we do it, when you do it in that sense, there's always a very real possibility that people will connect with it when you show them how it's going to affect them personally. And Rolf, how have you found the response from your readers? Because your target market is quite a young group. Do you, do you find they are engaging with this sort of content on Parliament? Ah, uh, look, like, to be honest, <laughs> it's hit and miss. It's hit and miss. There's certain issues that, that people are always going to relate to, mm. like um, education, for example. Like the people we write to uh, um, are still going through tertiary, most of them, like a good portion of them. So if we write about Nassos, for example, that's always going to be an issue that's going to affect them. Um, if you write about, for example, drug abuse, substance abuse, or... Yeah, the, 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 so there's certain topics that lend themselves to our demographic and they're always mm-hmm. going to read about them. Um, the stories that are much harder to tell. Uh, mm. <laughs> like if you talk about tele, the, the Department of Telecommunications and how they've just signed a new piece of legislature, sometimes they, they, they're not too concerned about that. Hmm. Ruff, before we let you go, can you just tell us a little bit about how you got to where we are, where you, where you are? Sorry, because you started with the with the live um, team as an intern. Am I right? Can you tell us a bit about that stage's progression for our listeners, and and perhaps say if anyone else listening wants to get involved and perhaps have this have the same opportunities that you have, how how they can do that? Okay, no, cool, that's sweet. Um, so, like you said, I work for um, Live Magazine, a sort of like a subsidiary of uh, Liberty Africa. And Live Magazine just focuses on giving internship opportunities to young people, uh, journalists, and I'm interested in media, journalism, uh, photography, marketing. So I initially started as uh, an intern, a journalist, and I interned for about two months um, before, and then we were contracted, because we do a lot of contracts, we were contracted by the University of California, if I remember correctly, Mm -hmm. um, to do a survey on electoral patterns in South Africa. That was supposed to happen for two months. Um, I did that for two, and that was in the build-up to the election. Mm-hmm. So we did that for two months. Um, I was happy with my work. Um, they gave me, <clears throat> and then after that, you know, um, I worked on the VIP campaign, which is sort of like, like I said, youth, youth participation in politics. Worked uh, on that up until December, and yeah, in January, I got offered a permanent post and I mean, like, there are a couple of people who work who are full-time employees at Liberty Africa now who initially started as journalists, photographers at Live Magazine. So that's just sort of the whole sort of um, that's just yeah, that's just sort of the, uh, what 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 the company does. It sort of wants to funnel young people into, into like uh, give them opportunities in the media media industry and then sort of funnel them into some paid work at some mm-hmm. other point. Um, I just happened to. To, be, uh, to work for the company, they just like my work so much. <laughs> <laughs> and and Rof, if, if other young, uh, young people out there want to get involved with Live Magazine or the Live VIP campaign, how can they do that? Cool. So um, they can go to livemag.co.za. That's L-I-V-E-M-A-G.co.za. Um, and they can also follow us on Facebook, Live Magazine, and on Twitter. 
um, at Live Magazine. Okay, yeah. perfect. Yeah. Um, th- thanks a lot, Rob. I'm sure people will be really keen to get in touch. Um, now, the big question we're all dying to ask is, do you have any big funny stories from Parliament? Anyone you bump into or any anything funny happen over there? A scuffle with Bladen Zamandi in the halls? Or? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there was one time, like, um, I remember the first time we went to Parliament. <laughs> I don't know what portfolio committee we were going to. And, I mean, like, I'm a young guy. I don't wear suits and stuff like that. I'm always, <laughs> like, fitted caps, you know. Jeans, sagging jeans and stuff like that. And we bumped into Mandela Mandela. Okay. <laughs> we were, yeah, and we were wearing like our caps in, in, what's this, in one of the com- committee meetings. And he just like, he just lost it. He was like, do we have no respect? Why don't you take off your cap? I was like, okay, 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 we'll do it, man. Like, chill, chill. But other than that, yeah, like it's pretty, pretty, yeah, there's not that much grandstanding or stuff like that. I'm guessing you don't wear caps to Parliament anymore. <laughs> nah, I took the hint. <laughs> okay, that's that's uh, Rafuo Mineta. Thank you for joining us uh, on the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. Sweet, thanks, man. Cheers. And if you want to get in touch with the the live VIP or live magazine campaign, you can look them up on online and find out how to get in touch from there. Now. Kingsley, I just want to take the take the conversation a little bit to some of the work I've done this week for the Daily Maverick. Um, one of the things I've been covering almost since it started is the xenophobic looting that happened in Soweto. Now, yesterday I was in Mayfair, uh, in in just sort of one of the you know suburbs just in the west of Joburg, and I was actually pretty shocked to see what was there. You know, we know I think it's something like 150 stores have been looted now. We know at least six there've been at least six related deaths. The looting has spread from Soweto, from different parts of Soweto to other parts of Khabateng and even isolated incidents in other provinces. But still, I was shocked when I, when I got to Mayfair and found, found this place called Princess Street, where a lot of the Somali store owners who've been looted have now fled to. So I got there and, you know, there are all these guys just hanging around either in the park or in the coffee shops and restaurants. And they've just got absolutely nothing to do now. And I was just story after story and you couldn't, you couldn't avoid speaking to people because everyone wanted to, everyone wanted to share their stories. Person after person just told me how they they conveyed a sense of sort of hopelessness and and just really not knowing what they're going to do next. Now that they they came to South Africa after fleeing sort of war or tribal violence, you know, with Al Shabaab in Somalia, and now they're in South Africa and they're fleeing they're fleeing the place where they were taking refuge from the townships. I'm just finding it shocking. I'm not sure if you've been following the story. I mean, I have. I mean, I found it quite interesting that you that you led with xenophobic attacks. I think there was a there was a bit of a debate about is it really xenophobia? Mm, mm. Is it just crime? I mean, what do you think of that? Is that just a done deal? And it's a well, fresh- no, no. I think I think certainly there are criminal elements. Someone was telling me yesterday, even someone who seems to be in the know a little bit, that the, it, it's led by some criminal elements, young guys, you know, perhaps twenty or thirty or forty of them. Who sort of pick out a store and then they go, they, they force them, themselves in. They go straight for the airtime, the cash and the cigarettes, the most valuable things that, that are in a spaza shop. Then as soon as they get them, they run off to go to the next door and beat the police there and leave the police to deal with just local little kids, you know, trying to steal like a, a two liter cold drink or something like that. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure if that's true, but certainly there are criminal elements because it's a crime, yeah. but, um, there it is targeted. It's only foreigners that are being targeted. I haven't seen a, a South African spaza store looted at all. So, so the question is, a lot of people are saying, is it xenophobia or Africa, uh, Afrophobia? Absolutely. I've got no doubt that it's, that it's one of the two or, or some mix of what, what between, but it's certainly not just criminal. And I think, I think that's the, the, the bigger thing. And, and we're an interesting case of these xenophobic, xenophobia 
Afrophobia debate because you're from Kenya. Yeah. I'm from Australia. And I never really, no one ever really knows where I'm from. You know, no one sees, they just see me as a white guy when I go to these mm. communities. No one ever knows, no one ever cares, no one asks me anything generally. But I'd like to know from you, being a, being a Kenyan who works and lives in South Africa, do you have a different experience of perhaps discrimination or prejudice? Um, I think, I mean, I live a pretty middle-class existence. So I, <laughs> I can't say that I'm on the forefront of some of these issues that we're facing when, uh, with, the, with the looting that's been going re- on recently. Um, I mean, what I face is pretty much very mild experiences of, of being spoken to in local languages, so your Zulu, your, your Tswana, and, and, and experiencing a frustration when I can't respond in that language. So mm-hmm. it's almost like you're black. From you're, their side. Oh, absolutely. You're black. You don't speak this language. It's like, like, um, it, it's a frustration. Mm. Whereas, whereas people see me and I'm just another yeah. dumb white guy who can only speak English, you know. <laughs> Occasionally I'm, people try to speak Afrikaans to me and I, okay, I can't. <laughs> I just keep on saying a skis and then they just get confused even more. So. But Greg, please share with us some of your business skills. I think, I think one thing that's coming out of this is that foreigners have great business skills. <laughs> So, I mean, give me something, man. What you got? I don't think I have any business skills at all. I'm, I'm, I think I'm going to be an employee for life. No, I'm not quite your Somalian or Ethiopian or Bangladeshian guys who, those guys seem to really be able to come in here and open businesses. But that's one of the other interesting things that's come out of this, um, this looting. And even if perhaps there might even be a silver lining, I, I, I don't think we should say there are any silver linings, but it's one of the interesting things that come out of this is people are talking about why do the Somalians and such uh, why do they own most of these spaces? Why is their bread cheaper? Why are they better running it, better at running businesses? And some of, some, there's different opinions, but some of the consistent, um, answers that keep coming up revolve around their, their networks and working together. So by, by all these different spaza shops working together, all these different owners, they buy in bulk. They share transport costs. And we're seeing, well, what studies have shown is South Africans don't do that as much. So it's just an ind- ind- individual person buying your own, you know, your own bread and maize and everything like that and then selling it for higher prices. Yeah. Whereas all these foreigners seem to be much better, um, equipped at co- sort of creating cooperatives. And, and that's one lesson that I think South African small and medium businesses could take, um, from, from this problem. And I think now, Government needs to really try and help South African business become more competitive and particularly at, at the local level and improve their business services to not so much to push the foreigners out, but to make sure that South African businesses can be competitive in, in what is a competitive environment. And one of the things that a lot of people keep on coming back to as well is that during apartheid, business, businesses in townships and other areas was highly regulated and it really didn't promote a, a spirit of or a strong enough spirit of entrepreneurship and competition. So I think government, it's government that really has to step in and work, work hard to help local entrepreneurs. I mean, absolutely. I think, I think something that, that I've heard brought up in the past is that amongst a lot of cultures, you have generations and upon generations of entrepreneurship experience. So somebody's grandfather or, or parent or so on was in that industry. So my grandfather on the restaurant, my dad on the mm-hmm. restaurant, so I know how to do that. Mm. Whereas what is the impact of apartheid on, on non-white South Africans? Do they have that legacy? Do they have that experience? Mm. How many of these people are first-generation business owners trying to figure it out for themselves? So mm. that's, that's, that's really interesting. Mm. You're listening to Cliff Central. This is the Daily Maverick Show, Greg and Kingsley. We're going to go to a track. Do we have AKA and Burner Boy? Oh, yeah. Here we go. Up to the town, never know, stop, and I'm ranking the original Nigerian done dog and riding through, man, I ride out, I've been now without no curfew. Alongside the one that can't still is sure. This a robbery, the whole of them for no sound in this for now. Time to get them goons and kick your door down. Niggas ain't running anymore now. Bang, bang, everybody kiss the floor now. It's a robbery.
Stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com. It's just after 1.30 and you're listening to the Daily Maverick Show with me, Greg Nicholson, and I'm here with NKA Make Your Marks Kingsley Kapuru today. That was AKA and Burner Boy, All Eyes on Me, a bit of a South African-Nigerian connection to counter the xenophobia. Now we're going to cross over to our correspondent, Rebecca Davis, who's in Cape Town and has been at the, the FW de Klerk event today celebrating the 25 years of um, the unbanning of political parties. Rebecca, are you there? I am. I am. How are you, Greg? I'm, I'm well, thank you. Tell us a bit about what's happened today. Fascinating morning. We just dressed up, so the timing's very good. Um, the event was held, obviously, to commemorate the 25th anniversary of F.W. de Klerk's historical announcement of the unbanning of political parties and the release of Nelson Mandela in 1990. And to, to commemorate the event, the F.W. de Klerk Foundation had put together a panel of speakers, which included, obviously, former President F.W. de Klerk himself, mm-hmm. but also... Former President Chalema Motlante, uh, IFP leader Mangasus Butlezi, and um, Johan Rupert, the billionaire, and um, former British ambassador to, the, to South Africa, Robin Renwick, who was in his position at the time of the transition to democracy, so had some interesting stories to tell. Um, but a very interesting morning, Jack. I mean, a lot of stuff there that I think would have been quite uh, contentious mm-hmm. to, to a lot of from FW de Klerk, you, do you mean? Um, there was, there was, um, FW de Klerk obviously said, for instance, that he didn't, ex- he didn't ask for the honor of a street being named after him, but he accepted it. <laughs> but, um, uh, Mangosito Budilezi, for instance, said that he was shocked and horrified by any kind of condemnation of the naming of a street after FW, after, quote, what he did for us, which I think wow. is a, is a, a statement that will take some following for some people. Kalema Motlante also coming out in defense of the decision to name the road after F.W. de Klerk, saying that he thought Ahmed Katrada's view on it, which we obviously published on the Daily Maverick two days ago, was the correct one. And when challenged on the comments of ANC Western Cape leader Tony Ehrenreich, who delivered some bitter criticism of the decision, he said that next he encountered Ehrenreich, he would tell, he would tell him how mistaken his reasoning was. Really? So really a kind of, um, I wouldn't say love fest, but, you know, <laughs> a lot of warm admiration expressed for F.W. de Klerk, obviously, given the, the nature of the arrangement, mm-hmm. but very little, very little pushback against the notion that um, F.W. de Klerk acted out of purely moral reasons, that there was no pragmatism in his decision. That um, his was that that his was a moral decision. That's that's quite fascinating because I think the whole issue around the the naming of the road in Cape Town is obviously about that question as to whether everyone knows F. W. De Klerk made this announcement 25 years ago and he did play a role in the transition, but he was also a National Party leader and apartheid president. Did he ever, in, in, while speaking today, acknowledge some of perhaps the wrongs, or did anyone point out some some of the wrongs that he might have done or his party might have done or taken part in? Certainly nobody made any mention of F.W. de Klerk's history prior to mm. becoming president, not as education minister or his, as you say, fairly interesting part in the National Party. Um, he himself stressed repeatedly it was a moral decision to dismantle apartheid, and he really sought to, to, um, to refute the notion that his back was against the wall, as people often say, that he had no other options. And, um, yeah, he wasn't, he wasn't, I must say he wasn't challenged on this. Uh, Helena Motlante's line was a sort of diplomatic one where he said that there can be little doubt that 
FWB clerk met the needs of history at that time, I think he said in slightly loftier language, mm-hmm. um, which obviously isn't a very glowing endorsement, but it's a kind of straightforward statement. Mm-hmm. And um, from the likes of Johan Rupert, obviously an old friend of FWB clerk, you know, some really glowing stuff, him saying, for instance, that FWB clerk had enabled Afrikaners to hold their heads up high for the first time in a long while and so forth. And Robin Renwick certainly also coming out to to really praise FW the Clerk's decision. It was a love fest. It was a bit of a love <laughs> fest. It was a bit of a love fest, which was, which was interesting. And also another interesting point, Greg, was um, obviously a lot of concern expressed about recent racial incidents. There was a general, pretty much every speaker mentioned concerns about social cohesion in South Africa currently. But um, Motlante coming out specifically to singleize social media, hmm. which we've seen from the ANC recently when um, Bladen Zamanda was also talking about the tenor of the comment sections on South African news outlets being very racist. Hmm. It seems, seems like someone just got a smartphone. Thing. Someone's distributed fa- smartphones throughout the ANC. <laughs> I, think, I think that might be right. Internet has come to Lajuli House and they've wisened up. Hmm. And yeah, he was saying that the the... the cyberspace racism is, is, is a real concern, and particularly that they were alarmed by the number of bloggers and commenters and whatnot <laughs> who were espousing racist views who seemed to be very young. Mm. I should note that this was in sort of direct contradiction to what Johan Rupert later said on an optimistic note, where he said he felt hopeful about the future of South Africa because he was convinced that the next generation had no hang-ups in the way that the current and, and older ones did. He said that, you know, he was painting a picture of young South Africa as being entirely kind of colorblind and non-racial in a way that, that his generation wasn't. And, of course, Matlanta's comments sort of contradicting that way. He was saying, mm-hmm. look at all these people expressing this horrifying racism and they're all really young. What, what's that about? Mm, it's a little bit hard to, to judge the pulse of a nation when you're a billionaire, I think. But... Um, Rebecca, so F.W. de Klerk, he, I saw that he made some comments about the current state of the country and the country's progress. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? And did it sound like it was a bit of in, in contradiction or sort of a talking back to, um, President Zuma's comments that, you know, things like ESCOM, ESCOM's problems, um, that's, that's apartheid's fault? You know, ESCOM came in for a bit of a thing, and I'm not saying in particular from, Robin Renwick, whose views were sort of interesting because as the former ambassador to British ambassador during that time here, and first of all, has this long history of South Africa. But second of all, his role on the panel was to tell South Africans what the current international perception of South Africa mm-hmm. is. And he was saying that one of the most basic critical tests of a, of a, of a country is can you switch the lights on and do they stay on? And he was saying that the, the, the problems with, of electricity in this country are causing you know, real alarm from investors and real alarm from friends. And he said he was recently asked by a prominent investor whether the wheels were coming off in South Africa. So he was quite focused on the electricity crisis as being sort of seen internationally as emblematic of greater problems. FW the Church, to his credit, actually did not did not focus on the electricity thing mm-hmm. very much. He said at the end that his was a glass half full approach to current South Africa, but that he thought it would be quite a rough five years. So clearly not a lot of time for the current administration. And in fact, um, a little bit awkward, I thought, that so many of the speakers, or the likes of Johan Rupert, for instance, um, really giving Jacob Zuma's government a bat and Zuma himself, while Khalema Matlante sort of sat there and um, took it and, you know, applauded, applauded politely. So, sorry, that was that. There, You said they were criticizing Jacob Zuma. Yeah, exactly. And mm. criticizing elements of his policy. And Khalema Matlante, you know, 
before sitting there applauding politely. <laughs> Rupert said that um, sad to the teachers' union that that sad to have to be kind of neutered, that um, the government had to do something about that. And, you know, Montlante sits there and, you know, applauds. I just think that he is perhaps a very polite man, but he yes, is, you know, a very is. diplomatic He's never, never one to really act out of turn. I think that's right, yeah. During his comments, was, was, cause he hasn't been speaking very much in public since the, the 2012 Mongong ANC election race. Did, did his, his comments have the sort of former ring of, um, one of these, you know, former ANC presidents or leaders who perhaps have gone, gone into the twilight and now can sort of say whatever they want, but still, still keep some grace? Or, or did he sound like he was very much, and I'm talking about Montlante, did he sound like he was very much still involved in politics and looking to take an active part? Yeah, it's a good question. He didn't actually ever comment on his current status. Hmm. Although other other panelists made reference to him being a, a, a senior member of the ANC, obviously. Um, he, I mean, there was no point at which he seemed to let loose and diverge from official government line, except if perhaps you take those comments about FW the Clerk naming to be contradictory to the ANC in the Western Cape. I don't think anyone in the ANC really goes out to bat for the Western Cape leaders because they're so often seen as kind of mavericks anyway. Um, so it was, it, 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 there certainly wasn't any sense that he, there was this newly liberal Motlante, you know. Mm-hmm. He, he gave a very lofty speech packed with, you know, quotes from Einstein and Churchill and God knows who else. And, um, but I didn't get the sense that, you know, there was this invading, like, this untethered statesman now who can let loose. I was interested to see actually that, um, and this might well be common knowledge, but I didn't know that FW declared is part of a group of, I don't want to say Illuminati, but a former <laughs> world president who gives, quote, discreet advice to the president. There we go. Reported on, first on, on Daily Maverick oh, by yeah. Rebecca Davis. F.W. De Klerk is the head of the Illuminati. <laughs> <laughs> Rebecca? I mean, I'd be curious to see those, those behind doors. <laughs> Rebecca, we're going to have to leave it there. Thanks for talking to us. That's Rebecca Davis, no Daily Maverick journalist, uh, speaking in Cape Town after the F.W. De Klerk Foundation event today. On the line, uh, I think still in KwaZulu Natal, we have Ranjini Munasami, our Daily Maverick journalist. Ranjini. Hi, Richard. Hi, how are you? How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm good, thanks. So, so I'm here with Kingsley Kapuri from NK Make Your Mark. And you wrote a, quite an interesting article this week looking, um, sort of analysing the ANC and some of, some of its actions in the last few years. Um, particularly after the death of um, Jackie Celebi. Can you just sort of break that down for us? Because reading it, you sort of get the feeling that the ANC is eating its own, and then then once they're gone, they're trying to rewrite history. Yes, um, you know, it's been uh, quite remarkable to observe um, the course of events since the death of Jackie Celebi. Um, you know, he, uh, he, he was quite a controversial figure uh, since he became the National Police Commissioner. And, uh, and then, uh, after the allegations of corruption, uh, emerged again, uh, against him in the, in the mid 2000s. And, um, you know, his corruption trial was, um, quite astounding in terms of the, the allegations that emerged and his performance on the stand. And, um, I think during that time, you know, uh, it, it, from, from what emerged in court, it was quite obvious that Celebi didn't have um, any kind of good explanation for why he did what he did. So in the wake of his death, there's now been uh, claims that he was part um, of some kind of intelligence operation um, which uh, led him to associate with uh, with the drug dealer um, and underground figures, Glenn Angliotti. 
But more than that, at the funeral, we had things by the NCCC Duarte and former President Thabo Mbeki basically saying that, um, you know, the NPA was vindictive in pursuing the prosecution against Salebi and that there is more to it which needs to be investigated and that he was um, a hero, not a villain. Uh, so, you know, this this is the reason I wrote this piece is because, um, you know, uh, yes, Salebi did have... Uh, quite an outstanding uh, reputation and uh, contribution to the liberation struggle. But uh, during his corruption trial, I mean, there was an attempt by a former president Mbeki to protect him from prosecution, but mm-hmm. during the, um, the corruption trial, there was absolutely no attempt by the ANC to, uh, to weigh in and say, look, uh, you know, we have other alternate information, um, you know, that the prosecution uh, is not justifiable or anything of the sort. It's quite bizarre that they would wait until the person is dead and then ask for the NPA to, to investigate it. But it goes to the the bigger picture of the wars within the ANC and how it plays out through state institutions. At the moment, we have the case of um, the Hawks boss, Anwar Dramat. And, you know, it's the rather... A bizarre pursuit of him by the police minister, uh, and you know the, the various attempts to suspend him, and uh, and now there's a claim that they're actually trying to pay him out uh, for for him to take early retirement. And it makes no sense why somebody who seems committed to their job and who has a formidable reputation um, in the ANC would suddenly be pursued for 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 uh, allegations that ostensibly ostensibly have not been proven in a court of law that is uh, under illegal rendition of uh, for Zimbabwean nationals. So it seems rather strange as to why there's this pursuit of Anwar Dramat. But there are many more examples. And the other example is that of Ivan Pele, uh, who's a, a, a deputy commissioner at the South African Revenue Service. Uh, Ivan Pele as well has, you know, uh, he has an uncontested legacy in the liberation struggle. He was, um, and he continued to do good service to the South African government afterwards. And then there are these allegations that come up against him. It has not been proven in any way, but there is this dogged pursuit of him, um, uh, you know, to, to try and get rid of him. Uh, so, you know, it has happened so many times over the past few years that you found that there's been a deluge of senior officials who come from the ANC um, and who serve the South African state, but then they get caught up in the infighting. They get accused of being part of one faction or the other um, or not being loyal to the current, current administration, and then they get um, hounded out. Mm. And some of them do go quietly, and then others, like Dramat and Play are fighting for their survival. But then what is the point, you know? It seems, um, Greg, that the only time that these people would then be appreciated is when when they die, mm. and then some other entity official comes and speaks, and then, you know, cleans clear, their legacy. But in life, And they seem to have no problem with sort of making up very... Um, hard to believe claims, you know, when they when they die, but then they they never brought such claims, you know, when they're alive. Yeah, during their lives. But this is the thing, and then you know, the, the ANC. That's why it becomes its own worst enemy. Um, these are people who are doing service to the to the to the state, which the ANC runs. Um, and you know, there are so many others who are facing a range of allegations, who are dragged before the court, um, who don't get pursued, who don't get hounded out of their jobs. Um, in fact, they're protected, and the reason they get protected is because mm-hmm. 
um, they are part of, um, you know, the the in crowd, the 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 the, the ruling political elite. Um, so they get the, the special rules. So you know, and and the thing is that there's no consistency as well. When Tony Ngeni, the former NC chief, was and now National Executive Committee member, was convicted of corruption, the NC escorted him to prison. You know, there were high-level members, including the Speaker of Parliament, who took him to Portsmouth Prison and waited for him to 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 go inside. You know, and they gave him a hero's farewell. Then Celebi went to prison, or well, to prison hospital. <laughs> he went as a, a sad, lonely man. and was basically abandoned by the ANC. Uh, and now, all of a sudden, you know, there's a complete revision of his legacy. And suddenly, you know, he get he gets the ANC flag draped, mm. draped over his coffin. Um, and you know, the uh, a litany of uh, ANC officials singing his praises. So you know, they, they make a mockery of the ANC and they make a mockery of the South African public. Because um, and they they haven't said in all the, the, these um, uh, explanations or uh, you know that have come forth now they, they they're not saying whether it was false that Celebi in, uh, accepted in, um, money from Glen Aglioti or not was that false um, you know did he, did he not accept the money was did the NPA make up those allegations so were the were the facts that were presented in court false. This is what needs to be tested because if he were, if there was an unfair pursuit of him by the National Prosecuting Authority or if he was part of some intelligence operation, why was this not raised in court? Um, you know, the, this is the thing. And, you know, the, the NC is supposed to be in a leader in our society. It's, it's members, its employees in government are meant to be setting an example. You don't have somebody in the level at the level of the National Police Commissioner then in being involved in such serious corruption, being convicted by a high court, the conviction being confirmed by the Supreme Court of Appeal, and then all of a sudden, at the funeral, they say, oh, no, no, none of that was valid because he was, in fact, a hero. Um, what message does that send out to the South African public? And I don't think the ANC has an answer for that. And it's been interesting in this period when it seems like the ANC and and its allies have been, perhaps because of the criticism of Jackie Slebin, a lot of people want to tear, tear his legacy down. But it's like they don't look at him as a complex individual with with uh, a strong struggle history and he and a, a lot of service to the state. Um, but they seem to just sort of hold hold up the positive as well as the corruption side. They just seem to hold up the positives of Jackie Celebi and completely try to ignore that stuff rather than acknowledge both positive and negative. Yes, I mean, and you 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 don't get. I, I mean, in, with everyone in, in in society, you don't get a completely bad person or a completely good person. You get people who who do good things for society, and then they make mistakes, and sometimes the, those mistakes are illegal, and uh, they have to face the consequences from the law. And this is this is the thing about Celebi. He is a very divisive and a very complex figure for for that very reason, because um, he clearly uh, you know made a tremendous. Uh, contribution to society, to democracy in South Africa, but also on an international level with his, um, with his work at the United Nations and uh, with Interpol. So, you know, he is appreciated and uh, at that level, and rightly so. But if he committed a crime while in the position of, uh, while in a very high-profile position, which is meant to root out crime, then, uh, you know, then he needs to face the consequences for that, which he did. He was convicted, and with that conviction... Um, uh, you know, confirmed by the Supreme Court of Appeal. So it's, it's rather bizarre why the ANC didn't make 
any of this information public previously. Or um, with the former head of state, he would have had all this information before him. He had asked um, that South Africa trust him, that the, that the uh, celebrity had done nothing untoward. And, um, you know, he, he suspended the, the former head of the NPA uh, to prevent him from prosecuting Celebi. So he had a, you know, a range of information before him which he did not share with the public and which he's indicating he will, serve, uh, he, will, um, uh, he will make public now. And the question to be asked is why didn't the former president Becky make this information public all along? What, what was he waiting for? Absolutely. Surely it's in, it, it's in the national interest um, for us to have a national prosecuting authority that um, is above reproach, and surely you know he has a duty to to share this information. So you know there's a lot of smoke and mirrors in this entire saga, and um, there's a lot of questions to be asked about the ANC as to when he sends his deployees into the state, what is his instruction? Is it there um, to protect just the politically powerful, or are they there to do their jobs? Um, that's good, and actually, Ranjani. On that, um, uh, we're getting a very bleak picture of sort of the ANC and the. And the state of governance from from this conversation and your article. So I'm just wondering: is there is there any sort of light at the end of the tunnel? Is there a way the NC can self-correct itself from this? Look, Kenji, I think you know the the NC is um, it, the, the the South Africa functions. There are many many good people in the NC and deployed into the state who keep the wheels of the country turning. It is not all rubbish, you know. It's just that they are. Some high-profile figures who abuse their positions uh, and who um, compromise the state in the way they behave, the way they conduct themselves, um, and you know because of the networks, the, the patronage networks they promote, um, and 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 the abuse of power. But by and large, I think there are a lot of good. There is a lot of good work that is being done, and I think you know it's uh, you know it's, it's incumbent on the ANC to make sure that for its own image, for its it's 103 years old, um, you know, for it for for it to be sustainable, um, for for South Africa to be able to turn the corner on this really bad period we're going through with the electricity crisis, with the economic crisis, um, that you know, it, it ensures that the people who are deployed in the state do their jobs and do it well without any kind of corruption creeping in. And I think that they are not sending out that message clearly. I think that with these recent examples of Dramat and Pele, um, they are sending completely the wrong message, where they're saying that you toe the line or you get hounded out. And I think that will instill fear in the people that they have in the state, um, you know, to just keep their head down and to follow political instructions rather than doing what the Constitution and the law requires them to do. Ranjini, we're going to have to leave it there. Thanks for joining us. That's Daily Maverick correspondent Ranjini Munosami from uh, KZN. Oh, my pleasure, Greg. Thank you. You're listening to The Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. My name is Greg Nicholson, and thank you to Kingsley Kapoor from NK Make Your Mark, who's been in the studio with me. Kingsley, how do people get in touch with uh, NK if they want to? Um, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me, Greg. Um, in terms of reaching us at NK, um, our website is nk.co.za. We're also on Facebook and Twitter as at NKMYM and NK Make Your Mark on Facebook. Thanks a lot. And thanks to uh, Rafael Mineta from Live VIP Campaign and Rebecca Davis, who was also on the line today. Uh, see you next week.